Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, really good to see you this morning. Uh, we, uh, we're glad you're tuning in, whether online or in person today. Uh, it's a big day for us. Really excited to have our young folks uh, join us in leading worship today. What an awesome treat. I know I bring the gray hair today uh, for sure, and that's okay. Uh, I remember, I think, the first time I ever uh, preached, I, I was about 13 years old, 14 years old. Uh, my grandmother saved that tape. That was back when you made it on cassette tapes, you know. And a few years ago, sent that to uh, to me and my family to listen to. I will not uh, ever play that for you. Um, uh, but uh, luckily, these these guys are way more talented than than I was, and I appreciate you guys uh, leading us today. We uh, we've been going through a series together uh, in Galatians, uh, and really kind of looking at what Paul is is talking about to the church in Galatia, and maybe how some of that applies. And I hope that's been somewhat beneficial to you. Uh, we're going to continue in that and wrap that up next week. Um, but we started off week one. We looked at uh, this idea that is the gospel, the good news, because it doesn't depend on you, uh, that, that you can't lose it, you, you can't achieve it, uh, it's something that God did for you, and you didn't deserve it, and that's the wonderful news, and uh, in the second week, we looked at this idea that the gospel is a gospel of unity, uh, and that doesn't look like uniformity. Uh, what, that's really what a lot of times we'd like, right? We, we kind of want to legislate people to, to look and think and act all alike, and that would really help us, right, if we all kind of uh, thought the same and believed the same and acted the same. But that's not what God was doing when he gave us the gospel, right? He, in fact, he says, listen, you're all many parts. There's a whole lot of different parts about you, and each one of you has a different gift, a different skill set, but you come together as the body, and this is the good news. This is the gospel of unity. And then last week, we talked about this idea uh, of legalism and how we're really drawn into uh, a, a kind of a merits-based faith something that we can do on our own because there's something in us that, that sometimes wants to prove ourselves uh, worthy. And last week we came to this conclusion that a legalistic faith will either leave you bitter, right? It's going to point out all the things that you don't measure up to. And so you say, listen, if that's what it is, just forget it. Or it's going to leave you betrayed, thinking that, man, I can, I'm, I'm better, I'm good enough, I, I can do all these things, but that's not really true. So legalistic faith will either leave you bitter or betrayed, but it won't leave you saved. See, the only saving gospel is a gospel that's dependent completely upon Jesus and not on you or I at all. Today, in, uh, to kind of begin our, our thought together, I, I want to play uh, a short game with you. But before we hit play on that, I want to tell you the rules of the game. Here's the rules of the game. I'm going to show you a video. And you have to, now this, it's only going to work if you participate, okay? I'm just going to throw this out here. So if you just stare, it's not going to be any fun at all. So don't do that. But what's going to happen is you're going to see an item, and you're going to have to determine if that's a real item or if it's a cake, all right? So you just yell out, cake or fake, Okay, uh, you, you, you got you to see if they're, they're faking you out or if it's really a cake. Are you ready to play? Are you sure? 
All right, bring your enthusiasm. Here we go. fun, right? How, how many of you at least were wrong one time? It, it fooled you, right? Some of those cakes were really impressive, right? That was, that was kind of cool. Uh, this idea of what is true and what is not true or what is fake uh, is, is, is kind of a fun game to play, but it can be really challenging in real life to figure out what is true. So if you have your Bible, open up today to Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 8. And through the course of time, remember, Paul is talking to this church, and he's talking to them to refute what the Judaizers are telling them. Basically, the Judaizers are a group of people who are coming in and saying, listen, listen, we believe Jesus, we believe he's good, we believe he's the Son of God, but what we also believe is that it's not enough. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus. It's not enough to believe he's the son of God. There's a whole lot of other things that you have to do in order to have a right standing relationship with, with God. And so here, Paul is going to continue addressing this. Galatians chapter four, starting in verse eight, it says this. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. Right, So you, you are submitting yourself to something somewhere along the way. And here's the, th the thing about that. It's true. This is a true statement by Paul. He's saying, you know, you, you think in life that you're free to do whatever you want to do, but that's not true. That along the way, you become slaves of something, but now you know God, or rather known by God. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? 
You're observing special days and months and seasons and years, and I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, to become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. And as, uh, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. And how I have now become an enemy by telling you the truth? Have you ever noticed this before? That somehow along the way you, you've been friends with somebody, you got along with them really well, things were going really good, and it's like this close relationship, and all of a sudden it comes down to a hard truth, and things are never the same again. You've been there before? And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. He's like, listen, Church of Galatians, this is a time where you treated me as good as you would treat Jesus Christ himself. There would have been a time where if I had said, listen, I can't see, you'd have plucked your own eyes out and given them to me. But now when I talk the truth to you, it's like I'm disrespecting you. It's like we can't get along. Paul continues on and he says this, those people who are zealous to win you over, but for no good. If you have a highlighter, you're, you're underlying kind of person, man, highlight that sentence. Because this is going to be true in your life. There are going to be people who are zealous to win you over, but for no good. They want to, uh, what they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have a zeal for them. This is how the name of the game works, right? It's like, listen, can I convince you? Can I, can I, can I somehow put a wedge in where you're distant from them and now you're, you're really on my side of the camp. You're on my side of the fence. You see truth the way that it aligns with me. See, this is a new problem that we have in our society. It's an age-old problem of what is true. Paul says this, it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. And to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. When Paul interacts with these people, he's not just angry Sometimes we read the scripture, right? And it's like, and he's like, who bewitched you? Or who fooled you? Are you foolish Galatians? And we're like, woo, that's tense. And Paul says, I, I don't want you to hear it in a way that I'm upset with you. I want you to hear it in a way that, man, I'm in pain because I love you. See, sometimes the words that we say and the conflict we get in is because we just have a lot of, as, as Paul would say, we were zealous or we're passionate. And he says, that's good as long as it's for good. But sometimes we enter into things that are really just for our own good. He says, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. See, the church in Galatia, they're struggling to figure out what really is true. Is this message of Jesus and his sufficiency true? 
or the Judaizers and the way that they talk about, listen, that Jesus is good, but it can't just stop there. There's got to be some other things that I've got to add to this, and that has to be true. I mean, in, in fact, they go all the way back into a long history of being obedient to God and doing all these things. So that sounds good. That sounds true. So what is truth? James, the brother of Jesus, by the way, I I've had a lot of people ask me before, like, how are you so convinced that Jesus is who he says he is? And this is, this is one of my responses to that question. I say, listen, you have a sibling? Yeah, I have a sibling. Oh, good. All right. What would it take for you to believe that your sibling was the son of God? Because here's where James is. Right? James grows up with the oldest brother, Jesus, and his whole life before the crucifixion of Jesus, James thinks this guy's a little bit off of his rocker. In fact, there's a couple of times in Scripture where James shows up with the rest of the family and he says, no, 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 listen, it's time for you to stop this charade. It's time for you to end this. Listen, you're, you're, you're kind of you're gone off the rails a little bit. And then the crucifixion happens and the resurrection happens. And all of a sudden what we find is that James is now with the rest of the apostles and the disciples. And he becomes not just a believer. He says, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. What would it take for you <laughs> to, to look at your, your sibling and say, listen, a servant of you, you are truly from God. I don't know about you, but it would take my brother dying and coming back to life in order for me to say that about him. That's, that's the only way it's going to happen. So I believe through the, through, the, through the things that James says that there's some truth there. And as James writes and he's helping people understand the truth of who Jesus is. He says this, man, it's easy to get blown and tossed around like waves of the sea. It's easy to have that happen in our life. Like we don't know which thing is true, and so we just kind of go with the wind wherever it's blowing and that seems true at the time, we take that. And then the next thing comes along, we take that. And James says, listen, man, that, that is no way to live. Pilate, we have our next preacher, by the way. So a <laughs> few more years, he's going to be up here on our team, and that's going to be great. You don't have to take him out. It's wonderful. I love it. Pilate when he's having this discussion with Jesus right before he's crucified, asks Jesus this question. What is truth? And figuring out truth is not easy to do. It's easy to fall into a habit. It's easy to fall into preferences. It's easy to fall into what, what, what makes you happy or what best suits your needs. But if you're really going to ask an important question, the important question that everybody should ask themselves, the hard question that everybody should ask themselves is how do you know what is true? And it's an important question for you and I to wrestle with. I remember growing up, and we were kind of the first generation, my brother and I, in, our, in both sides of our family that, that had ever really spent time in church. 
I remember wrestling through some things that we saw, right? Some inconsistencies that we saw in church and in life. We had to wrestle through, is this true? Is this really, really true how, how this works or how that works? And it's good to wrestle through those things. So today we look at this and we are wrestling through what Paul is helping these people wrestle through. And that is, how do you know when there's so many people who are zealous to win you over to their side what the truth really is? I think to get to the heart of that matter, we have to understand our society and the way in which we understand what truth is. And this might be one of the most controversial sermons I, I preach here, but I think it's so needed and so valuable. It starts actually a long time ago, uh, even really before the Crusades, uh, the Christian Crusades that, that happened in 1000 AD. It's really even before then, but, but as, as political and religious alignments came together, we, we recognized that there was a need to kind of triumph our agenda or our beliefs over everybody else. And so we see that continue to escalate and escalate and escalate to, to the point where in, in roughly around 1000 AD, we start to see these Christian crusades and the crusades come through. And basically what it is is a mixture between religious and political powers that enforce to the point of death beliefs. And this happens over and over and over again, about 120 as best we count, different kinds of Christian wars that would happen for the next 650 years. Millions and millions and millions of people were dying to prove what was really true. But in 19, or sorry, in 1648, there was something called the Peace of Westphalia. And the Peace of Westphalia really came at the end of or the conclusion of something called the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War, uh, along its name, took place over 30 years. And over the course of 30 years, almost 50% of the, the population in Germany passed away due to the religious wars at the time. 50% of the population. It was brutal and it was ugly. And so what the leaders of, of these groups of people, Spain and Dutch and Germany, they came together and they said, listen, we have got to end this. I mean, this, this has gone on for decade after decade after decade after century after century after century and needless death after needless death, and what can we do? And so they came up with four principles of, of this piece of Westophilia. And one of the principles that came out, you can look this up if you'd like to, is, is uh, the principle of self-determination. And what that really means is that you get to decide for yourself what you believe is to be true and what you believe to be right. And I get to decide for myself what I believe to be true and believe to be right. And we're going to leave each other alone. And that's going to be it. And so over the course of time, what was kind of preached and taught and talked about politically and religiously is that we're going to give each other our own space and we're going to kind of figure it out all on our own. And what's good for you is good for you. And what's good for me is good for me. And we're going to create a, a space of tolerance. And listen, I think tolerance is a great thing. But out of this self-determination, 
came things that eroded truth. There's a couple of key principles that we found. The first one being that there is no absolute truth. There's only relative truths. That I can hold to a truth that is true for and you can hold to a truth that's truth for you, but in, in, in all and in, in all understanding, there is no absolute truth. There's only relative truths. The second thing is that personal freedom is the ultimate goal. Personal freedom, the ability for me to express myself, is the ultimate goal, and that absolute truth destroys freedom. If there's some kind of overarching system, some absolute truth that happens, then it infringes on my personal freedom, and therefore that's bad. The third thing that came along with that is that absolute truth is about control, power, and eventually leads to oppression. Why would they believe that? Because that's what they experienced. When somebody had absolute truth, well, this is the way it is. Well, then all of a sudden it became a way to control, gain power, and eventually led to oppression and murder of other people. And so they said, listen, absolute truth, whenever you find that, it's all about control and power and oppression. So absolute truth is bad. The fourth thing is this. You cannot be enlightened or tolerant and hold on to an absolute truth. The enlightenment, enlightenment era comes and, and it, as more and more as I'm enlightened, I have more and more tolerance and I have more and more of, of, of this idea of self-determination and so therefore I hold all absolute truth as invalid and that makes me more enlightened in this era. And I believe these four points erode away at what truth really is. And so today what I want to do is, as I think what Paul had to do with this church in Galatia is to kind of go back and say, listen, we need to talk about a few things. There's some stuff that we need to go back in time and really kind of get a principle of what it means to know the truth. Because as we mentioned earlier, listen, the truth will set you free. But when we aren't rooted in truth, as James says, man, we're going to be blown about by the waves the wind. I want to point out a few things, and if you have notes, it's a great opportunity to write some things down here. This statement, the first statement that kind of comes out of this uh, self-determination is that there's no absolute truth. There's only relative truth. An absolute truth for a definition is this, that something, uh, something that is always true no matter what circumstance happens. Absolute truth means that something is always true no matter what circumstance happens. I want you to think about this. You come over to my house, and on, on, at our house we have a lot of trees. And I ask you to come down, and we're going we're to cut down a tree. And it's on the side of a hill, which most of my yard has a hill in one direction or the other. And so you and I talk about the best way to cut this down to make it land where we need it to land. And so I have a theory and a formula of how best to do that. And you have a theory and a formula of best how to do that. And we disagree on how this thing is going to land. I believe we need to put a wedge on one side. You believe we need to put a wedge on the other. I believe we need to cut one direction. You believe we need to cut the, the other direction. But eventually we start cutting on this thing and it falls. 
Now, what do we know for sure? One of us is going to be right. But it for sure, if we cut it, is what's going to happen. It's going to fall. Now, we have different theories, and only one of us is going to be right, but we know for sure if we cut that tree down, it's not going to be suspended in air forever. It's going to fall. Because predictable results hinge on the idea that we have an absolute truth. Predictable results hinge on the idea that we have absolute truth. Here's what I know for sure. One day, Steve will not exist this side of heaven. One day, I'm going to die. It's it's an absolute truth. I can't escape it, and neither can you. It's an absolute truth. Two plus two, no matter how hard you try to Make it anything different is always going to be, oh, some of you are weak on that. It's always going to be four. Some of you are like, I don't, math was never my game. It's always going to be four. You can't make two plus two anything else. It's an absolute truth because when you have predictable results, it always hinges on the idea that we have an absolute truth somewhere. In fact, the saying, the saying that there is no absolute truth is an absolute truth. It contradicts itself. And so to say that we don't have any absolute truth is a falsehood in and of itself. We would have to at least have one absolute truth. Predictable results, look around you folks. Predictable results hinge on the fact that in life we have a lot more absolute truth than what we're actually prepared for. Number two, that personal freedom is the ultimate goal and absolute truths destroy freedom. Personal freedom is the ultimate goal and absolute truth destroy freedom. I'm talking to most of you now who are like over 21. If you're over 21, Hank, this is for you. If you're under 21, this is important, but you may not be there yet, okay? How many of you, when you finally hit 21, you were like, freedom! And then you found yourself with all that wonderful freedom you had in places that locked you up year after year, and for some of you, you still aren't free yet. See, it's not absolute truths that steal freedom. Freedom isn't, listen, this is huge. Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. It's not like, hey, you can do whatever you want. That's freedom. Freedom is the absence of regret. Because there is no prison like the prison of regret. And you know that. And I do too. Man, there are places that, there are still places and people you can't go and you can't talk to because you are still wrestling with regret that happened in the past because of the freedoms that you had at one time to do whatever you wanted to do. You had it and you found that that truly is not freedom at all. Freedom has nothing to do 
with having no restrictions. It has everything to do with having no regret. And this is the beautiful thing about the gospel. Whether you believe that Jesus is the son of God or not, or whether, whether you think the, the Bible is full of hogwash or not, if you start to live by biblical principles, I can tell you this 100% sure you will have a life that has zero regrets. The way you handle your finances, zero regrets. The way that you treat your spouse, zero regrets. The way that you handle yourself as an employer or an employee, zero regrets. The way that you live in community, zero regrets. Now that's freedom. But see, we don't always understand that freedom when we see it as a way of restriction until we're compromised and held captive by the regret. And then we truly understand that real freedom is freedom of regret. Paul talks about this in one of my favorite verses. He says, he says something like this, right? He says, man, I know what to do, but I cannot carry it out. There's, there's so much, there's, there's like I'm held captive by some things and he, and he eventually says, I, I, what a wretched man, who can save me from me? Paul has all of the freedom in the world to do whatever he wants and he recognizes that he's caught up in this place that only Jesus Christ brings about the freedom that Paul and you and I need. Are you with me, church? Here we go. Number three. Absolute power, or sorry, absolute truth is about control, power, and eventually leads to oppression. Now, let me start this by saying that I think this can be the case most of the time. I think we see this a lot. And in fact, when Jesus comes, I believe that, that, that he came and, and he taught that this was true. And he railed against those who were in authority saying, listen, you're oppressing people. You're, you're controlling people. You're, you're abusing people. And that's not what my kingdom is about. And unfortunately, listen, unfortunately for those of you who have wounds from, from the past or from church, you can point back in time and place and history and say, listen, this is what the church has been about. I absolutely agree with you. But that's not what Jesus wanted. And that's the premise behind it. See, religious beliefs can be highly dangerous unless they're fixed on the foundation of love and humility. Religious beliefs absolutely can be highly dangerous unless they're fixed on the foundation of love and humility. Unless they're fixed on a place that prevents them. Their founding principles are something that goes against violence and oppression and power and control. And this is exactly what, what Jesus teaches about. You know this. I don't, even, I don't even have to go too far into the stories. Jesus gathers up his closest disciples, and he's getting ready to die. And he tells them, listen, I'm going to give you a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know your, come on, what are they going to know about you? You're my disciples if you love one another. Not if, if you somehow legislate morality, that would make it easy. 
But he says, no, 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 that's not, that's not how the whole world's going to know. The whole world isn't going to know when you like bash them over the head. The whole world isn't going to know when you, you make all these, you know, uh, statements on uh, social media about all the verses you're reading, all the ways that everybody else is wrong and you're right and you have all the answers. That's not the way the whole world is going to know. The whole world's going to know when you choose to love somebody. And here's what I know about love. Man, it's given. It's giving when it costs you deeply. How do I know this? John 3, 16, one of the best well-known verses of all time, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? His one and only son. God says, you know what love is? Love is giving your very, very best for oftentimes somebody's very worst. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus' uh, closest 12, right? The apostles are gathered around and some of them are arguing with their mom, which is awesome. I love, I, this is one of the things I love the most about the Bible is how true it is. And many different, as you can just see a Jewish mom who's there with her sons and I'm like, I don't need to know who's going to be the greatest among, you know, is, which one of my kids is going to be next in line when you die? Who, who's who's going to be the right and the left? I want to know. That's something my mom would, that's the uh, mom is going to do that, right? And Jesus says something that, man, listen, church, this is huge. He says, you know how the rest of the world operates? When you're in control, you leverage it for you. He says, not so for you. Instead, if you want to be great, be the servant of all. If you really want to matter in this life, if, if, if you want to, you know, reach some kind of pinnacle, then be the slave. Be the servant. Be the guy who's humble. Be the guy who gives up everything for somebody else. If, if you ever find yourself in a position of power or authority, then what you do is you don't leverage that for you. You leverage it for everybody else. See, I absolutely agree with the idea that religious beliefs can be highly dangerous unless the founding principles are exactly what Jesus lies out. And he says, listen, the whole world is going to know if you're really my follower, if you love one another. And listen, if you really want to be the greatest in my kingdom, when you have any kind of power, authority, control, you leverage that not for you, but for other people. Band, if you're ready, come on up to the stage. We're going to finish out with one last thought here. One of the last statements in this is that you can't be enlightened or tolerant and hold on to any absolute truths. That somehow being tolerant means that, that I just have to, to, to believe and think like you. And in order for us to get along, in order for me to have an enlightened mind, I have to hold on to nothing of value for me. And I don't believe that this is what Jesus teaches. In John chapter 1, I, in fact, John is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. He continues over and over again with this phrase about who Jesus is. And he, he says this multiple times throughout. Jesus, full of grace 
and truth, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. And then, in true John fashion, he shows us a story that explains what full of grace and truth looks like. It's this woman that was caught red-handed in adultery. Now, the guy somehow gets off scot-free, but the woman is dragged in front of everybody else, public humiliation, and they say, all right, listen, based on the law, based on what's supposed to happen, don't we condemn her to death? And Jesus says, I tell you what, if you've never in your life done anything that you would consider a sin, then you have the right to pick up the stone and you start condemning her. And it says, this is really interesting, it says the oldest people started leaving first. You know why that's true? As those of us who have a little bit more gray on our heads and faces than the rest of y'all, some of y'all covering yours up, that's Okay. We love you anyway. We have a lot more experience in the regret, don't we? Oh, you don't have to think too far to think back to a time when you said and you did and you were at and you called that person, you, you did that thing. It's like, nah, I got a whole lifetime. And so it says they walked away, each one of them, to finally there was nobody left. And Jesus is there. Check this out. He says, where'd everybody go? And then she says, they left. And he says, nobody condemned you. Then I will. Except for that's not what he said. He said this. Listen, if there's nobody there to condemn you, then neither do I. See, I believe Jesus teaches this way of, of interacting with people who are deep entrenched in sin and they may not even believe like you in the slightest bit. And he says, listen, I'm not standing here to condemn you. I'm here to love you. I'm here to protect you. It's full. And then he says, now go and leave your life of sin. It's this fullness of grace and truth. And see, here's where I think the church has had a struggle for a really, really, really long time. We want the balance between how much truth should we give? How much grace should we give? How, how do we balance this thing out to make it fair? Oh man, that's a little bit too much truth. Or, oh man, that's way too much grace. And Jesus is saying, oh no, no, no. The way to live it out is not to find the balance between but the expression of fullness of both. That, we, that we're full of grace and we're full of truth. And folks, I believe that this is what Paul is teaching the church in Galatia. That yes, there is an absolute truth and it's found in Jesus Christ and him alone. And we can stand assured on that. We can live that out together. When we get it wrong, man, it looks way, way wrong. But when we get it right, it is transformational. And so, as the body of Christ, who has been redeemed and you have lots of regrets, 
and lots of things you'd love to change. God shows us the fullness of grace and truth through coming together at the table, through giving his one and only son that you and I can live and find hope. And so today we have the table set up for you to take communion. We're gonna pray and then we'll take that this time. God, we are so grateful for you. We're so grateful that you love us and that you care about us and that you call us your own, sons and daughters, no longer slaves. And we're so grateful that you give us freedom and no regret through your life. God, there's some of us today, we are pent up in a prison full of regrets from our past. And would you bring freedom today? Father, would you help us to hang on to the absolute truth found in you today and to live out a life, God, that's not about power and control and what I can get, but it's about leveraging everything we have for those around us today. And that we would be a church that's full of grace and truth today. And it starts at the table. God, we love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You're dismissed to the tables.